we will be continuing our teaching series in James called Born Again Behavior. Two Sundays ago, we learned that when believers carry out their inner passions and lusts, they display friendship with the world and commit spiritual adultery, which creates enmity between them and God and also stokes the flames of his holy jealousy. A key verse for us was Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, which says, For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. As believers, it is important for us to understand that sin cannot break our union with God. We have been raised up with Christ and are seated with Him in the heavenly realm, and nothing can separate us from Him or from His love. Ephesians 2.6, Romans 8.38-39 we are forever unified with the Lord and one with Him in spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. Our union with God is permanently sealed by sovereign grace, and the Holy Spirit in our hearts is the deposit which guarantees it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. We can, however, break communion with God or fellowship with God through habitual sin, through friendship with the world, through spiritual adultery. When this happens, our sense of God's presence and joy diminish. Our faith grows cold. We begin to lose interest in the things of God. One of the first things to go is our Sunday attendance, and it's not because of the coronavirus. Our desire to gather with the people of God to fellowship, sing, and learn from God's word goes down, and we eventually just stop coming. Hidden sin, I'm convinced, is the number one cause of spiritual apathy and low church attendance. We must understand that sin is like weeds in a garden. If it isn't snatched up by the root and destroyed, it will keep growing and eventually choke out our spiritual life. This is precisely what happened at Sardis. Do you remember what John said to the few remaining believers at that dying church? He declared, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Revelation chapter 3, verse 2. In the next section, James gives his readers and all true believers good news. Please take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 4. We will be focusing this uh, today on verses 6 through 10. I have entitled this message, God Gives More Grace. Let's read the text together, and then we'll pray before we actually get to work. I find it in my Bible here. It says this, verse 6, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you um, open our minds our eyes, ears, and minds, and hearts to the truth of your word. We pray that your word and the truth would penetrate deeply inside of us and expose whatever sin we have. We pray that the Holy Spirit would convict us on those sins and uh, that the Holy Spirit would lead us to humble ourselves 
and to seek after you. Teach us from your word now um, as we humbly uh, pay attention to it and listen to it. And we pray that you receive all the glory this day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's go ahead and pick up where we left off two weeks ago. We need to begin at verse 6a. Verse 6a. It says this, But he gives more grace. After sternly rebuking his audience, his readers, James pens what I believe is one of the greatest sentences in all of Scripture. But he gives more grace. What a, what a wonderful statement. What a wonderful sentence. Uh, what a, a wonderful verse. The grace James points to here is not what we typically call common grace. No, the grace of God that is common to all humankind. It is common because its benefits are experienced by the whole human race without distinction between one person and another, believers and unbelievers. It is grace because it is undeserved and sovereignly bestowed by God. Another term for common grace is providence. You've heard that before, God's providence. I actually prefer uh, that term for that. I think R.C. Sproul was the one that really liked common grace. But in any case, there is a, a kind of common grace that God bestows upon all of humankind. And what James is pointing to here is also not uh, what we would call saving grace, um, the grace of God that is effectually applied to those whom God has predestined to save, the elect. Now, James's audience had already experienced saving grace. James refers to them as brothers or brother believers over and over and over in his little epistle. So we know they were believers. So if James is not referring to common grace or providential grace, if he's not referring to saving grace, what kind of grace is James then pointing to? Well, he used the Greek phrase um, agocharis or agocharis, which can be rendered greater grace. So this is the grace that James is pointing to here. He is pointing to God's greater grace. Now, by calling it greater, James does not mean that this kind of grace that he's referring to here is greater in value than God's other graces. That's not what he means. Greater does not refer to value. It refers to scope and to supply. It has to do with the amount of grace. And this is precisely why the ESV translators inserted the word more. Again, notice in 6a, but he gives more grace. What James is basically saying is there will always be enough grace for God's people, regardless of their situation and need. It was as if he had wrote, you have sinned greatly, but you have not outsinned God's greater grace. There is a never-ending supply of it for you. Verse 6a is like Romans 5.20, where Paul wrote, Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now, when we struggle with sin and struggle with friendship with the world, struggle with 
spiritual adultery and idolatry or whatever, God will give us more grace so we can overcome those things and live for him. We can never outsin God's grace. Never. His grace is like a mighty ocean, vast and deep. And a true believer will never desire or attempt to outsin God's grace. He or she hates sin. Sin is the bane of the believer's existence. Now, I'd like for you to listen to what R. Kent Hughes, his commentary, says on this little verse. It's really, really good. He said this, If to your alarm you find that you are repeatedly succumbing to a burning pursuit of hedonism, God will give you more grace if you ask. If you are a victim of an imploding self-centeredness that repeatedly sucks you into its nothingness and you want deliverance, there is grace for the asking. Perhaps you are so stubborn that you have never lost an argument. This is funny. He says, perhaps you are such a knothead that you never listen to anyone. Now you find that your most intimate relationships are impaired and that your spouse and friends find your presence a burden. But you want to change. God will give you more grace. If you have fed on cherished hatreds, but now see that the feast has really been the devil's feast and the main course is your soul or on your soul, you will, and you want deliverance, he says this, he will give you more grace. And he says this as well, perhaps your life has insurmountable obstacles, perhaps a terminal disease, there is more grace. Or a loved one's death, there is more grace. Or a shattering divorce, there is more grace. Or the bitter ashes of failure, there is still yet more grace. What a wonderful quote. Now, in my mind, a question arises at this point, and that is this. Are there any conditions to receiving this greater grace from God? The answer is yes. And we see them in verses 6b through verse 10, or basically the rest of the section. James lists five things we must do if we want this greater grace from God. Now let's begin with number one. First, we must humble ourselves. Verse 6b. He put it this way. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now this little verse here that James penned, it contains a spiritual law formed by an amalgamation of Old Testament and New Testament passages. When we combine Psalm 138, verse 6, Proverbs 3, verse 34, Matthew 23, verse 12, Luke chapter 1, verse 52, and 1 Peter 5, 5, we basically end up with a spiritual law that says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what we're seeing here in the text is this, the condition to receiving God's greater grace or any grace from him whatsoever is what? Humility. We must humble ourselves is what he's saying. Now, take into consideration the culture that we live in. It is 
constantly telling us uh, that self-value and self-pride, you know, are the, the keys to life and happiness. It tells us that we are the most important people in the whole world. It tells us to, to follow our hearts and carry out our desires and passions and never let anyone get in our way. The world preaches self-love, self-pride, self-exaltation. But the Bible clearly teaches that if a person is captivated with the world and consumed by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, he or she has no claim on God's grace. R. Kent Hughes wrote again, he says, The unbowed soul standing proudly before God receives no benefit from God's falling grace. It may descend upon him, but it does not penetrate and drips away like rain from a statue. But the soul lying humbly before God is immersed and even swims in a sea of grace. So while there is always more grace, it is reserved for the lowly, the humble, end quote. So how do we receive and experience God's grace? First, we have to humble ourselves because God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. That's the first thing. Let's move to the second thing we must do. Number two, we must submit to God. We see this in verse 7a. Uh, it says, submit yourselves therefore to God. He just says it plain and simple. Now, the Greek word for submit is hypotasso which means to subject or subordinate. The word picture here is of a person subordinating themselves or, or bowing down or subjecting themselves. Think of the idea of them falling prostrate and laying on their face, bowing before somebody. That's the word picture here. James is basically telling his audience, you need to bow down before God and subject yourselves to his lordship and will. Now, I just want you to stop and think about it for a moment. And this is utterly true. No person can come to Christ unbowed. It is an impossibility for a person to come to Christ in a spiritual way while he is remaining upright. We must humble ourselves and bow before Christ and before his lordship. This is reality. And if you think of the time that you were first converted or saved... You didn't come to Christ while being upright in a spiritual manner. You, you bowed yourself before him. I, I remember doing this myself. Some of us feared that, you know, we wouldn't be able to bow low enough for Christ to forgive and receive us. You know, at that moment, we just realized how terrible of sinners we were, and we just thought, there's no way he's going to receive us. It doesn't matter how bow. I could go under the ground. Well, the truth is that Christ did receive us because he will never reject those who humbly come to him for forgiveness and salvation. John chapter 6, verse 37. Now, the life of a true believer will be marked by perpetual submission, uh, a daily bowing to Christ. And yet sometimes we get entangled in sin, and we need to be reminded of our initial submissiveness we need to be taken back to when we first got saved and initially bowed our knee to Christ. 
That is what James is saying here. He is calling his audience to go back and repeat their initial bowing down, their initial submission. That's what he's reminding them of here. You need to go back and do what you did in the early days because you've gotten off track. We can hear Revelation chapter 2 verse 5 sort of echoing in the background. Do you remember the, the words of John to the church at Ephesus? He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So, the second thing we must do to receive and experience the greater grace of God is submit to God. Now, let's move to the third thing. Number three, we must resist the devil. Uh, we see this in verse 7b. James puts it like this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, resist is an interesting word in the Greek, and it paints a, a bit of a picture, another word picture here. It is a, a military metaphor that means to stand against as in combat. Now, another great question arises here. We are being told that if we want the grace of God, we must resist the devil. The question now is how do we resist the devil? How do we do this? Well, I think Ephesians 6 is a good place to start. In this excellent passage, the Apostle Paul describes a fourfold strategy for resisting the devil. The first thing we need to do, according to Paul in Ephesians 6, is we need to know our enemy. Think about it. How can we resist our enemy, the devil, if we don't know anything about him or understand how he works, how he maneuvers, what he does? We can't resist him if we don't know him or understand what he does. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul describes the devil. He describes the enemy. He said this, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, who is the devil? Well, he's not the guy next to us. He's not people that frustrate us or any of that. He is an invisible, angelic, demonic being. He is a spiritual, he is he belongs to the spiritual forces of evil and the cosmic powers and this present darkness. In fact, he's uh, sort of the prince over all of the demons. And that is exactly what he is. So, so our adversary, our enemy is not flesh and blood, is a spiritual being, which tells us what? We have to deal with him spiritually. So that's the first thing. We got to know the devil and how he operates. Second, we need to put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul wrote, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There it is, as plain as you can get. So another question arises here. What is the whole armor of God? What does it consist of? It consists of the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of gospel peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and lastly, the sword of the Spirit. And we see that in verses 14 through 17 of Ephesians 6. Now listen to what R. Kent Hughes wrote. He wrote this about that whole section. He said, these are the weapons. What are they? Truth, righteousness, peace, 
faith, salvation, and the word of God, okay? That's the armor of God, what he just described. Now he says this, any believer who resists the devil with these will put him and his armies to flight. And then he says, this is not arrogance. This is the truth. You and I can withstand the devil if we wear the armor God provides. And don't you just love that? That is a, a wonderful quote and a wonderful truth. You want to resist the devil? We got to know who he is. And, and secondly, we got to put on the whole armor of God because that armor protects us. And that sword of the spirit, the word of God, it enables us to literally strike out at him. It's not a defensive weapon. It's an offensive weapon. And it is it is ultimately sharp, right? Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is, is sharper than any double-edged sword. And so we need that to use that as a weapon against Satan, against the devil. Now, third... Third thing we need to do here, according to Ephesians 6, is we need to pray in the Spirit at all times with all kinds of prayers, including supplication. We see that in verse 16, or in verse, pardon me, in verse 18a. And what is, maybe you're wondering what supplication is. What does that mean? It means a, a prayer of request. It means we're supplicating or asking God for something. And when we're dealing with the devil, we need to ask him for protection. We need to ask him for strength. We need to ask him for power. We need to ask him for all sorts of things. So that's one of the, another thing that we have to do. We have to pray in the Spirit at all times, and, and we use all sorts of prayers, especially supplication, verse 18a. And lastly, fourth, we need to keep alert with all perseverance. We see that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18b. Now, many of us if not all of us at times, underestimate the importance of alertness. Alertness is a highly important step. Why? Because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8 Alertness is synonymous with spiritual discernment, which is our ability to detect error. We develop alertness, a.k.a. spiritual discernment. How? by reading and studying the Bible, by getting to know the Word of God, by getting to know the great doctrines of the Bible, just by studying the Word, by listening to sermons, by feasting on the Word. Now, the ever-expanding charismatic movement that we see today, it literally preys entirely upon scripturally ignorant, spiritually undiscerning people. But I believe, truly, the most effective way to shut down that cult, or any cult, is through education. When people grow in their knowledge of the Word of God, their spiritual discernment increases, their alertness increases, and what happens? They will eventually leave those demonic strongholds, those cults, those false churches. So let's quickly summarize what we just learned. What is the fourfold strategy for resisting the devil according to Ephesians chapter 6 verses 14 to 18? Know our enemy the devil, put on the whole armor of God, pray in the spirit at all times with all kinds of prayers including supplication, and keep alert with all perseverance. Now let's move to the fourth thing we must do to receive and experience the greater grace of God. Number four, we must get close to the source of greater grace. We see this in verse 
A. Uh, James said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So quickly, as a rule of thumb, we cannot draw near to God while we are close to the devil through sin. Closeness to the devil is enmity with God, just as friendship with the world is enmity with God. Verse 4. We have to create distance between us and these enemies of God if we desire to draw near to God. Now, sadly, there are people in the church today who think they can be on both teams. I said this a couple of weeks ago, but what they try to do is they try to keep one foot in the world with the other foot in the kingdom of God. They sort of straddle the, straddle the fence. And what these people don't understand is that one foot in the world is actually both feet in the world. Now, we are either of the world or we are of the kingdom of God. We cannot maintain dual citizenship. Scripture clearly teaches that those who are in Christ by grace through faith are what? Not of the world, just as Christ Jesus is not of the world. John 17, verse 16. Another scripture says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. As believers, we are not of the world, and we have been given access to God through the blood of Christ. And it's because of this we can what? Approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 4.16 It is actually our blood-bought right to draw near to God through prayer, but we shouldn't do it irreverently, thinking that we can drag the world and the devil along for the ride. We must turn away from the enemies of God. We must leave them behind. And this leads to the, the fifth and final thing we must do to receive and experience the greater grace of God. Number five, we must repent. And we see this in verse 8b and verse 9. James puts it like this. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. According to James in this phenomenal pair of verses here, repentance is three things. First, it is cleansing our hands. What does this mean? What does it mean to cleanse our hands? Do we just go over to a sink and grab some soap, some lava, and scrub them real good, then wash them off, then dry them? No, it doesn't have anything to do with that. This is what cleansing our hands has to do with. It's, it's a metaphor for something here. It has to do with turning away from outward manifestations of sin. In other words, it means to quit sinning outwardly. Now, James's audience sinned outwardly in a number of ways, and I'm not certainly not going to go through them. We've been through all of them, a couple of them. I mean, I'll give you the full bandwidth here. Basically, they went from getting into quarrels and fights with one another, verse 1, which is 
highly outwardly sinful, to practicing filthiness and rampant wickedness. And we saw that back in chapter 1, verse 21. So cleansing our hands has to do with turning away from outward manifestations of sin. It has to do with stopping, uh, to stop sinning outwardly and committing these outward sins and doing these sorts of things with our hands and with our bodies and with our words. Now, I want you to notice something very important in the text. Notice the change in James's demeanor here. Up to now, he has been courteously referring to his correspondents as brothers, but now he insultingly calls them sinners. Do you see that at the beginning of verse 8b? That's pretty incredible. Second, repentance is purifying our hearts. That's what he tells us. Now this has to do with turning away from inward manifestations of sin or to quit sinning inwardly. And really, that's the birthplace of sin, right? It begins within us with temptation. But James is basically saying, look, you got to stop the outward sins and you got to stop the inward sins. What inward manifestations of sin did James have in mind here? How about entertaining inner passions, desires, and lusts? We saw that back in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. How about being double-minded? That's an inner sin. Now, he called his readers double-minded twice, here at the end of verse 8 and back in chapter 1, verse 8. To be double-minded is to have a mind that is set on the world and on God. Um, it is a, a mind that wants what the world has to offer and what God has to offer. So he's telling us that we need to repent of the inward and outward sins. Important thing to do. And third... Repentance is being wretched and mourning and turning laughter and joy to gloom. Now, what in the world does he mean here? Well, this little phrase has to do with changing our attitude about sin. Instead of reveling in sin, instead of celebrating sin, sin should break our hearts and flood us with sorrow and disgust and contrition. It should, it should break our hearts. We shouldn't laugh about it. We shouldn't take it lightly. We shouldn't celebrate it. It should lead us to contrition, a brokenness in spirit. Uh, now, I've said this over and over before, but a sign of, of salvation, you know, if you have salvation, a sign that will be there, it, it is going to be a repentance, but it is going to be a hatred of sin. And I would add to that, an even truer sign of salvation is hatred of one's own sin, right? Because we tend to get caught up with hating everyone else's sin. But salvation, if we have salvation, we're going to hate our own sin more than anyone else's sin. We will hate all sin, especially our own. What James is basically saying here is that true repentance consists of turning away from outer sin, turning away from inner sin, and changing our attitude about sin altogether. Like going from laughing about it to loathing it. And I would say if, if sin doesn't break our hearts, we should not expect to draw near to God and receive and experience his grace. We need to remember 
God draws near to the brokenhearted. Psalm 34, verse 18. We need to remember, the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit, for they are blessed. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. And we need to remember that those who mourn over their sin, those who experience a brokenness and a mourning and a sadness and a sorrow over their sin, what? Shall be comforted by our gracious God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. A couple of Beatitudes there. James closes this incredible section with an exhortation in the last line. Let's go ahead and take a look at it in verse 10. James said, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. All right, so let's rewind for a second. Back in verse 6b, James told his readers that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What's he doing now? Now he exhorts them to go ahead and humble themselves before the Lord so that the Lord will exalt them. What does exalt mean? It means to be lifted up. Here's the idea here behind what James is saying. Here's what he means. The idea is that if they will humble themselves by submitting to God, by resisting the devil, and by drawing near to God through repentance of sin and the love of sin, God will give them an abundance of grace that will restore the joy of their salvation and exalt or lift their lowly condition. Psalm 51 verse 12. That is what James tells them. Closing. I want you to know that the exact same invitation goes out to each of us today. If you are a believer and you have given yourself over to your inner passions and lusts, or you have become steeped in spiritual idolatry and adultery through friendship with the world, or you are pridefully enraptured with yourself, with what you have. You know, you kind of live in your own little universe with your own money and your own resources, and you're just so turned in on yourself. All you really care about at the end of the day is yourself. Even the things you do for others are tainted by self-desire and self-preservation. If that's you or you're in some other scenario, some other sinful scenario, you need to know this. If you will humble yourself and submit to God, if you will... Turn your back on the world. Turn your back on the devil. And if you will once again draw close to God through repentance of your sin, he will draw close to you and he will give you his grace without measure. And he will most certainly restore the joy of your salvation and lift up your countenance. In other words, he will put a smile on your face. Now, if you are not a believer, you need saving grace before you can get to God's greater grace. And you need to know that God never gives his saving grace or any grace apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
All of God's grace flows to us through his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're an unbeliever, you need to follow the exact same steps that I just walked through. But you also need to repent of your unbelief and put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You need to believe that he lived for your righteousness, believe that he died to pay for your sins, believe that he was buried in a tomb for you. You need to believe that he rose from the grave three days later victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for you. If you do this, if you do these things, if you follow the steps that I have just told you about here, it is evident that you have received God's saving grace. This is the starting point for you. And trust me when I say this, it won't be long before you'll be calling on the Lord for his greater grace. You're going to need it every day, just as I need it every day. I'd like to wrap it up with a wonderful quote from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. This is what he said about grace. I know not a word which can express the surprise and wonder our souls ought to feel at God's goodness to us. Our hearts playing the harlot our lives far from perfect, our faith almost blown out, our unbelief often prevailing, our pride lifting up its accursed head, our patience a poorly sick plant, almost nipped by one night's frost, our courage little better than cowardice, our love lukewarmness, our passion for the Lord as ice. Oh, my dear brethren, if we would only see ourselves rightly as walking dunghills, we should indeed be surprised that the sun of divine grace should continue so perpetually to shine upon us and that the abundance of heaven's mercy should be revealed in us. Amen.